like to invite everyone at this time uh, to turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 80. Uh, Psalm 80. And we're going to read the whole psalm together. Psalm 80. Beloved saints, this is God's word for us this morning that we might know him better, cling to him closer, and trust in him more. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought out a, a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, Turn, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the sun, whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, they have, may, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, that we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Uh, let us pray and ask God to be with us as we spend time in his word this morning. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we come. We come eager to know you, that you might increase our faith, that we might learn to trust you more. And that we would know what it is to surrender our pride, our self-assurance, and that we would learn to rest upon you, to trust in you. Help us to do that even this morning as we look into your word in this beautiful psalm we pray. Amen. Uh, when you read the accounts of the crucifixion that the Gospels have of Jesus, his horrific uh, death at Calvary, you can't help but wonder, how did we get here? When you understand who Jesus is, the eternal God, uncreated, eternal, no beginning, perfect in power, 
infinitely glorious, holy, righteous, without sin or blemish or stain. When you understand what he deserved, that that heaven was his rightful uh, dwelling place, that all glory and honor are pray and praise, rightly speak and address him, that every knee uh, should bend and every heart should adore and every tongue confess its allegiance to him. And when you think about and you understand that the men who put him on the cross, who they were and what they did, how, how they claimed to seek God's honor and how they misled God's people and that what they were really guarding was their position of power, that, that they conspired, that they deceived, that they manipulated. When you understand all of this and you read what happened to Jesus, the, the mockery, the spitting, the gambling for his clothes, the anger, the striking, the resentment, the lies, and just the absolute excruciating agony of the crucifixion, how can you not wonder, how did we get here? How did it come to this? But it did happen. Somehow the son of God, the heir of heaven, became the object of scorn. He was manhandled by his own creations. He was lied about and allowed to be judged by those to whom he gave breath. All protection was removed from him and he was abandoned to the wills of wicked men. Even the heavenly father abandoned him. And there he sat, soaked in blood, drenched in tears, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we wonder, how did we get here? How did it come to this? But those words spoken on, on the cross by Jesus, the agony, the tears, the confusing circumstances, they weren't new. The prayer or the song or the, even the hymn that Jesus sang on the cross was not new. It had been on the lips of his people many times, many years before. And it's the song that God's people record in Psalm 80. In verses four through six, we hear uh, a very honest account of how they feel. Their throats are parched, their bellies are empty, and the only thing that they have to eat and to drink are their own tears. But tears aren't a sufficient diet. They will not sustain you. But what else did they have? They had angered God, so that to the point that even their prayers have become repugnant to God. So how do you make peace with someone when the very sound of your voice causes revulsion? How do you apologize when you've lost the right to be heard? And so now God, who once fed them with bread, the very bread of heaven, manna in the wilderness, the God who once gave them water to drink from rocks, has given them over to a diet of tears. He's handed them over to their arrogance, to their lusts, and he's handed them over to their enemies. Their neighbors now laugh at Israel. They are an international joke. The God who used to ride with them into battle, seated between the wings of the cherubim at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, has sent them into battle unprotected. And so they have suffered one defeat after another, one 
uh, colossal, catastrophic battle after another. The great and mighty Israel, which once inspired fear among their enemies, has become nothing more than an afternoon amusement to the other nations. So the mighty have fallen. And you know what Israel's wondering. You know what they're asking. They're saying, God, why do you never smile on us anymore? Why that constant look of disappointment? Have we become your enemy? Is this it? Is all hope lost? Is it all over? And you know what they're asking because you've been there. If you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you know these feelings all too well because they're familiar to all of us. You know the feelings when you first come to the Lord, everything felt right. Like you were finally on the winning team. Things were good, glorious even. And and everything around you seemed to have a rose-colored tinge to it. It felt like God was always smiling at you and that you could live forever in that smile. But then, then you slipped. The old ways came back to you. Those old patterns that you had sworn off came, far, uh, came back far more easily than you could ever have imagined possible. And once again, you've returned to what you swore you had left behind. And as real as something you can touch with your hands you feel the smiling face of God turn to a look of sadness. And you know, without a doubt, that if you were to look upon his face, you would see that look, that worse than disappointment, that, that, I'm sorry, worse than anger, that look of disappointment. And you'd give anything to once again, bask in God's smile, to feel like all is right, all is good. And you wonder if it's possible. You wonder if it was ever real or if it was all just your imagination. You begin to wonder if you were ever really his child or only play acting for a time and deceiving yourself. But maybe, maybe it's not a return to your sin that's brought these questions to your mind because sometimes it's just hard times. They come and, and, and heartache follows hard times. And all that joy and, and excitement seems to fade and it feels like the honeymoon is over. And you wonder how God could allow anyone he loves to, to suffer like this. You begin to wonder if he really does love you. If he ever loved you. Or if it was just your imagination. So whether it's sin or a trial and hard times, the result is the same. You ask God, why do you never smile on me anymore? Why that, that constant look of sadness or, or disappointment? Have I, have I become your enemy? Is this it? Is all hope lost? Is it over? If you've ever felt like that, then Psalm 80 is for you. It's not a new hymn, but it is one that is relevant for every age because it helps us to understand that in the Christian life, tears will come, sometimes overwhelmingly so. But if you belong to Jesus, those tears must surrender to eternal joy. Tears will come. They will be powerful in your life, but they cannot last forever. They must surrender to eternal joy. 
And so it's into this reality that our psalm cries out. The refrain repeated three times in verses 3 and 7 and 19 is restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restoration, that term restore us, is, is interesting because restoration looks both forward and backward. It, 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 it's hoping for change. It wants things to change. It wants to move forward. It's longing for something different, but what it longs for has existed before. It wants to go back to an earlier, a happier time. And we know uh, Israel's story is well documented in the scriptures. Uh, we know how it began, Abraham and Sarah, that 90-year-old woman who had been without children for so long finally gives birth to her single son. And, and all the future of Abraham's family hangs on this child. But by the third generation, there were 12 sons, stout and enterprising, uh, a bit of troublemakers, before that generation had passed, they had secured a place of prominence in the best of the land of Egypt. But time can be a heartless adversary. And Joseph's and his brother's previous service was forgotten. Future pharaohs in Egypt saw their growing numbers, not as a blessing, but as a threat. And their time of providence, or I'm sorry, of prominence, gave way to years, even centuries of slavery. And they cried out to their God, how long? Have you forgotten us? Is this it? Is it all over? And do you remember what God said to Pharaoh? He said this, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is saying that what Ephraim and, and Manasseh and Benjamin, uh, the sons of, of Rachel had been to Jacob, the, the, the sons of his right hand, the firstborn, the, the prominent ones in that sense. This is what all of Israel was to God. the sons of his right hand, his favored children. And God came to Pharaoh and he rescued them out of slavery. He boldly led them not out the back door. They didn't slink away in the middle of the night. He led them right out the front door. He carried them through the wilderness, feeding them on bread from heaven and, and water from the rock. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't fray. Eventually, he brought them uh, home to the promised land that he had sworn to give to Abraham and his descendants after him. And they conquered one nation after another. They grew in wealth. Their reputation grew to the point where it bred fear in the hearts of all those who heard their names. Our, our psalm likens them to a vine. It says God took, took them out of, of another land, out of Egypt, and he, he brought them into the choicest of lands. He built a wall around to protect his vine and he planted it and their roots went deep and many were blessed by their fruit. And yet as we come to Psalm 80, those, those days have faded. The God who built the wall of protection around them, he has knocked it down. He's allowed them to be plundered and trampled the days of blessing are gone. And they want those days back. Not something new, something quite old. Restoration. 
the way things used to be. They desire bread and wine again, rather than a diet of tears. And they cry out, how long? Restore us. Smile once again on your people and we will live in the light of your face. That's not all they ask. Look at, look at verse 16. For those who have afflicted God's people, they pray, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. Israel is saying, smile on us and frown on them. Let that, let that withering look of disappointment that we've come to fear and dread, that look of judgment be theirs. May they know what it means to stand under your reproachful gaze the gaze of the God who created all things, whose judgments are perfect and just. See, there's no, there's no true judgment. Uh, I mean, there's no true salvation without judgment. For God to save his people, he has to judge his enemies. The two go hand in hand. You can't truly have salvation without judgment. And so while God's judgment on his enemies is not pr the primary theme of the psalm, it's, neither is it absent. It has to remain. We have to see that. And that might help us to understand the great mystery with which we started this morning, the quest to make sense out of Jesus' suffering at the hand of sinful man. Why? Why did Jesus have to leave the protection of heaven? Why? Did the God of glory have to enter into his creation? Why did the almighty ruler of all allow himself to suffer affliction, ridicule, mockery, and scorn? Why did he let wicked men lie about him? And why did he let their judgment stand? Why did the God of life allow death to consume him? Why did the God of abundance allow himself to be fed on tears? These questions are, are natural because we always try to make sense out of our suffering. When times, uh, hard times come, there are questions that we all ask. Why did he say that? Why did she do that? Do I deserve what I got? Did, did I do something to cause this? Why? Why did this happen? And sometimes there's answers, but not always. Sometimes there's no clear reason. You did nothing to bring on upon yourself what's happening. It just happened. Or someone hurt you, not because you messed up, but because they're sinful and they failed you. And nothing you could have done would have stopped it. But with Jesus, there is a reason for his suffering. God's told us why he suffered. There is something that makes sense out of it all. He suffered not because he deserved it, but because we do. He came to suffer all those things in our place. He willingly left heaven and came to earth. He refused his own protection in order to protect us from eternal judgment. He laid down his life in order to save ours. He was fed on tears in order that he might give us the waters of life. Because salvation never comes without judgment. 
If he was going to save us from judgment, the judgment we deserve, he would have to endure it for us. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. That's why he was willing to endure such atrocities. He walked the trail of tears because the trail of tears leads somewhere. And his tears led to our life and our salvation. When Israel cries out for restoration, for salvation, this is the cost that God would have to pay if he was ever going to say, yes, I will restore you, I will save you, I will let my face shine upon you. All that Jesus suffered on the cross, though, was not the final word. Even as he surrendered to life, restoration was coming. And so on the third day, his life came back. He rose again, not just with what he had before, but with more. Because it was because of all that he suffered that he not only had the right to heaven now for himself, but to share it with all for whom he suffered. You see, our God is a God of restorations. He is a God who dries tears and replaces them with eternal joy. When the world was created, it was glorious. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no heartache, there was no suffering. And every human heart cries out for restoration. A longing for what the world once was. And we all know it could be again. But we struggle to hold on to hope when times get hard. It's then that we need to remember God's promises. God promises to finish what he starts. In Philippians, he promises that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's not that God promises that there won't be setbacks. There will be setbacks. He doesn't promise a life without tears. What he promises is to finish what he starts. God promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And it's in the context of that promise that he originally told Joshua to be strong and courageous. And he calls us to do the same. The very call to courage tells you to expect adversity. You don't have to be courageous when things are easy and comfortable. You only have to be courageous when things are hard and scary. When God says, be strong and courageous, he means get ready. Things are going to get hard. Hard times are not meant to suggest that God has abandoned you, but are meant for you to recall his promise that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And that promise doesn't depend on how perfect you are. Paul told this to young Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Did you catch that last part? He can't deny himself. Uh, what, what he's saying to us here is that if you have placed your faith in him, then you have been united to him and he has been united to you and the two have become one. They have become so intertwined that they share a destiny so that he could no more abandon you than he could deny himself. The language Jesus uses to describe this reality actually echoes our psalm. It's that of vines and branches. 
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He will answer those cries for restoration. He will grant that salvation. He will turn his own frown upside down and he will cause his face to shine upon you, not just for a day or a short season, but for all eternity. Because for God's children, times of chastisement are temporary, but joy is eternal. Tears will come. Sometimes overwhelmingly so. But if you belong to Jesus, they must surrender to eternal joy. This is God's promise to you. When times get hard, when it feels like you're living on a diet of tears, when your heart wants to question God's love, when you're tempted to think that it's all over and that God is done with you, when you're wondering how you got here and if all is lost, God's given you Psalm 80. Turn and read and pray and cry out with the saints who have gone before you. Restore me, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that I may be saved. It's not surprising that this psalm uses the imagery of a meal to communicate truth. God has done that for as long as creation has existed. He's used food to teach us important lessons. Were we together this morning, we would be sharing bread and wine together. And just like restoration, the Lord's Supper looks both backward and forward as a picture of Jesus' body and blood, the bread and wine, they look back to his earthly suffering and his death. When all protection was removed, while he sat on that cross for our sakes. They're a picture of his being fed on tears and willingly enduring death to give us life. But the bread and the wine don't just look back, they look forward to a day of restoration when every tear will be dried and we will dine at the great wedding supper of the lamb with our savior in heaven. The Lord's supper is meant to help us live in this fallen world amidst its pains and its toils and its trials while we await the final restoration. It's, it's meant to teach us that our hope is found in belonging to Jesus, knowing that, that he cannot deny himself. It's meant to assure us that for those who belong to Jesus, tears will always give way to joy. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you who keep all your promises, you who finish all that you start, we confess that we don't always understand your ways. 
we get confused, we get scared, and yes, we doubt. Father, we confess, though, that your word is clear. Restoration and salvation belong to your children, to all who place their hope in you. And so our confidence is not in our circumstances, but in your character, your faithfulness. And so we ask, we plead that you would bless us and that you would keep us, that you would make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. We plead that you would lift up your countenance upon us and that you would be our peace. Amen.